0: Hey y'all, Aaron and I needed a break from recording this week. Don't worry, we will return with new content next week. Until then, please enjoy these two episodes from our Patreon vault. If you like what you hear, consider joining us over at patreon.com slash lifetime sentence. So until next time, please remember to eat your vegetables and charge your phones. Bye!
1: This is Lifetime Sentence, the podcast where we watch bad Lifetime original movies and compare them to the truly heinous stories that inspired them, because sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction.
0: I'm really jealous because it looks like you have alcohol and I don't.
1: I have a beer. I'm trying to see if I can, like, keep it inside me.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um. So I've been listening to my, to country music all weekend because every once in a while i go through a kick where I just love country.
1: I do the same thing. I do. And the CNAs are this week. So you're picked a good week.
0: Yeah. Um, so, but one of the guys I found, um, who's like a up and coming, he's not even like with a label yet, um, mm-hmm. has a whole song called cheers to beer. Ooh. And I'm like, there's not been a more country song written. It's a whole ballad of love to beer.
1: I love it. <laughs> I'm gonna have to find it. I'll send it. you
0: the Spotify link.
1: Amazing.
0: So, what yeah. beer are you drinking? Shiner.
1: Um, the Carback Hopadillo. Okay. IPA. Okay, is it good? Yeah, it's good. It's I mean, it's an IPA. It's it's pretty good. It's it's, it's like a, a regular go to.
0: I'm just drinking Starbucks water. It's just Delicious. water in a Starbucks cup. But I have to show it's you. It's not
1: even Starbucks water. <laughs> no.
0: It's a brand deal, apparently. I'm just going to hold it in front of you like this. Product (laughs) placement. Visual product placement for our audio Patreon episode.
1: Amazing. (laughs) So, did you see that um, a couple people responded and they do want the Facebook group?
0: Oh, yeah. I did see that.
1: So, we need to, like, get on that. I have not had the spoons for anything this weekend except, like, breathing. That's been my, my... Not even eating, just breathing. So that has been my um, goal this weekend and I made it. So maybe next week.
0: Yes. I'm also just kind of really overextended on social media. So I'm going to have to find how that fits back in my life. Um, I have some suggestions for you off recording that I meant to bring up earlier. So I'm glad you said that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that you will find it agreeable, but I just want to run it past you before I say it on air. Okay.
1: <laughs> that makes sense.
0: Um, So, are you going to tell me something awful and gruesome and full of blood and death? No. Am I at the wrong podcast?
1: <laughs> no. Tonight, I'm going to tell... I needed something lighter because this week has been heavy for me. Um, just all over. So... I'm going to tell you about the Gardner Museum heist. Okay. But if you, I mean, while it's not full of gore and blood and guts and murder, if you think losing $500 million is painful,
0: it will be painful. I'm sure that is painful. But as (laughs) I have been poor all my life, I can't actually, I can't actually even like conceptualize what $500 million looks or feels like. Well, apparently it looks like 13
1: works of art from a museum.
0: Oh, were they, were they like this? Like two inch by two inch canvas? Three inch? No, I mean, they were much worse than
1: that. They were
0: terrible works of art. Thank you. You,
1: Rembrandt and Vermeer.
0: There's a reason I keep you around.
1: (laughs) Who wants a Rembrandt when they can have an original Look at this little
0: vintage Christmas card I made.
1: Shut up. That's so cute. I love it.
0: I love it. Stocking up for the market next weekend.
1: Yeah, so the Gardner Museum heist is the largest recorded theft of property in history.
0: Uh, one time someone broke into my car in college and stole all my textbooks, so I refuse to believe this story.
1: <laughs> well, Lord knows that textbooks are fucking expensive. Yep. So, um, yeah, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is located in Boston, Massachusetts. It was built in 1901 and houses over 15,000 pieces of art. I want to go. I can't believe you haven't been. I want to go, too. Have you we been? Together. No. Okay. Wanna, I've never been to Boston. I want to go really bad.
0: Boston patrons, do you want a live show? Can you host <laughs> us in your house?
1: Oh, I want to go. In the early morning hours of March 18, 1990, which is the day after my birthday. That's what I was
0: so. about to say
1: yeah 1990
0: you were four years from being born
1: yeah totally 13 pieces of art with a combined value of over 500 million dollars were stolen
0: did Rothko make this list no do you have a list of the pieces stolen I do. Okay. Rothko is one of those really shitty modernist artists who draws a red square on the piece of paper and then sells it for $40 million. So I was going to be real pissed if he was included in that.
1: No, you will, you will know these artists. Um,
0: okay. Well, I know Rothko. So.
1: <laughs> coincidentally, when the heist occurred, the museum was in the middle of updating their security systems.
0: Gee, that doesn't sound like an inside job at all.
1: Not at all. Um, and they had two complete bumbling idiots on duty as security guards.
0: Okay, that checks out.
1: <laughs> including a musician who admittedly routinely showed up to work drunk and high.
0: Okay, you don't have to point out that he's a musician. Some of us are responsible. <laughs> That's, I'm so done. Continue. So,
1: though he insists on the night of the robbery, which was right after St. Patrick's Day, he was sober as a judge.
0: Okay. <laughs> sure, Jan. <sure>
1: <laughs> Two men showed up at 1.24 a.m. claiming to be police officers responding to a disturbance call and demanded to be let into the building. It was St. Patrick's Day in Boston, so the security guard thought it made sense that there could be a disturbance call. So even though it was against protocol, he let them in. Okay. Because the police officers threatened to arrest the guard if he did not let them in. And he had Grateful Dead tickets for the next day.
0: <laughs> well, sir, let me tell you a secret. That's not how policing works. So
1: getting arrested would have been a real buzzkill.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he was sober. Totally. Um, so he let them in. Um. And one of the officers, supposedly from the Boston Police Department, um, where everyone knows like it's such a small town, they know everybody by face, is like, hey, you look familiar. I think we have a warrant out on you. Can you come outside with me?
0: <laughs> OK.
1: And this guy is like, sure, and just gets up and leaves his post, where the only panic button in the building happened to be located. The officer handcuffed him, and it's at this point when the officer did not frisk him first that the guard thought, huh,
0: this is weird. Okay, Aaron, <laughs> you told me you were going to tell me about a heist when we first started this. Um, it does not sound like a heist if the two security guards unlock the doors and then just, like, bowed them into the room.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> so this is when the second security guard comes downstairs and is also, quote-unquote, placed under arrest. When he asked why he was being arrested, the police officers come clean and say they're not police. Neither of them are under arrest. They're being robbed. And as long as they don't cause trouble, they won't get hurt. To which the guard reportedly responded, don't worry, they don't pay me enough to get hurt.
0: (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) When I worked at Walmart, if somebody wanted to come in there and steal everything, I'd be like, bye.
1: So the robbers tape up the security guards in the basement and head upstairs over the next hour. They proceeded to cut 13 works of art from their frames. No, which literally pains me no. to say out loud. They cut uh, don't them. say it
0: again. <laughs>
1: um, while this was going on, another alarm went off that was meant to alert the guards that someone was getting too close to the art. No. The robbers found the alarm and smashed it. Um, they loaded up their vehicles around 2.38 a.m. Witnesses say it may have been a red hatchback, which using a red car to rob a museum seems really dumb. But they also got away with it. So what do I know?
0: <laughs> they were cops, though. Um, cops always drive red hatchbacks.
1: The 13 pieces of art that were stolen are as follows. Vermeer's The Concert. Okay. Um, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which was Rembrandt's only seascape. Uh Uh-huh. A Lady and Gentleman in Black by Rembrandt. Uh, Landscape with the Obelisk by Flink. Flink?
0: Is it CK? Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, "Shea Tortoni by Manet. Self-Portrait by Rembrandt. Les Sorties de Passage by Degas, I love Cortage, Degas. Cortage à de Florence by Degas, Program for an Artistic Soiree by Degas, Program for an Artistic Soiree Two by Degas, Three Mounted <laughs> Jockeys by Degas, an ancient Chinese goo and a French Imperial Eagle finial that was used that was hanging above like a Napoleonic. Um, tapestry that was not stolen they just stole the eagle which in- has intrinsically no value
0: <laughs> okay um you missed one you missed um boy regrets decisions by paul adams <laughs> that,
1: that's just a, that's just a selfie that,
0: right that, yeah and it was the most expensive piece taken yeah
1: okay um, actually, the most expensive piece taken was the concert by Vermeer, which remains the largest piece of unrecovered art, in, or the most valuable piece of unrecovered art in the world. It's never been recovered? None of these have ever been recovered. Oh, my God. Um, authorities were really puzzled about the choices of works stolen, as there were much more valuable pieces in the museum that were left untouched. About four hours later, the morning shift guards arrived and called the police when they could not enter the building. The actual police come and discover Tweedledum and Tweedledum are taped up in the basement. (laughs) Even though the robbers were not wearing masks, the security guards could not give a good description of them to police.
0: <laughs> they were they they looked like cops man they just you think about cops and they were it, it they are it, cops they
1: also wore gloves so they could they did not leave any fingerprints one of the guards did later compare one of the thieves to colonel clink from hogan's heroes <laughs> In April of 1994, the museum received an anonymous letter claiming to know the location of the art, and the museum needed to act quickly because a buyer in another country who did not know the pieces were stolen, like how, I don't know, could legally purchase them. The writer asked for $2.6 million in exchange for facilitating the return of the artwork to which the museum agreed, but the writer then backed off stating he was afraid of being arrested for being, quote, the middleman in this arrangement. So there are several theories. Uh the first one is that the um heist was um organized by Brian McDevitt, who had attempted to commit a similar similar robbery um at a different museum in the 80s. He hijacked a FedEx truck and dosed the driver with ether. Which how do I get someone to dose me with ether? That sounds
0: great. <laughs> you Let have to names. you have to have a Vermeer.
1: Okay. He stole the driver's uniforms and headed to, I believe, the Hyde Museum. Okay. Um, With the intent of binding the guards and cutting the art out of the frames, but he got stuck in traffic on the way and arrived at the museum after it closed, so the only thing he got was a trip to prison for attempted robbery. He, at the time, lived close to the Gardner Museum, and he was questioned by the FBI and later by a grand jury, but was never indicted. The second theory was that this was an inside job. Um, this would explain how the robbers knew there was only one panic button and that there were no alarms on the actual artwork itself.
0: This, the There's FBI, no way this could be an inside job. This is impossible.
1: The, F- the FBI to this day says the Abbott, the stone security guard has never been ruled out as a suspect. Um, he also broke museum policy. Like I said, by even letting the supposed police in when they knocked on the door policy prohibited any unauthorized personnel from entering the museum Two years ago, a video was released of Abbott letting another unauthorized person into the museum the night before the heist, who the FBI now believes may have been an accomplice in the robbery. He denies knowing who this was, even though it was caught on video. (laughs) Oh my
0: god!
1: The third theory put forth by Arthur Brand, a private investigator who has spent his life recovering works of art, is that the robbers were small-time thieves who then sold them to American gang members who then, in the mid-90s, shipped the pieces to Ireland, where they are now in the possession of the IRA. He theorizes that he can get the pieces back in a matter of months.
0: Then go do it.
1: <laughs> Another popular theory is that the theft was orchestrated by Whitey Bulger, one of the most powerful, powerful cl- crime bosses in Boston during that time period, Heading the Winter Hill Gang, though he also proclaimed his innocence to his death. Till his death, Kristen Satara, the FBI spokeswoman, says, "Quote: The FBI believes with high confidence that we have identified those responsible for the theft, even though we don't know where the art is currently located. The statute of limitations on the theft has expired, and Boston's U.S. attorney has said they will not prosecute whoever comes forward with the paintings." despite this fact as well as the offers of reward money which was up to 10 million dollars at one point which may be where it's still at i don't i couldn't figure it out um no one has ever claimed responsibility for the crime and it remains unsolved to this day none of the paintings have ever been recovered because of isabella stewart gardner's will stated that the art was never to be moved or rearranged the empty frames still sit in the museum where they were where they were in 1990, serving as a poignant reminder of what was lost.
0: Wow, that's crazy.
1: So you can go into the museum and see the empty frames that are there. And there's actually a really good podcast about this um, this case called "Empty Frames." Huh.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's some of the guys that do crawl space.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so it's yeah. good.
1: Yeah, it's really good. Um, I am like completely fascinated by this case i really don't understand why you would steal all this art because it's not like you can turn around and sell it because it is rembrandt's and vermeer like i can't pop that shit on ebay and be like well no my 500 million dollars back gotta go
0: you have to know who you're selling it to before you acquire it
1: and the point the the, um, the podcast makes about it is that it doesn't look like these were, these were stolen by sophisticated criminals because they did cut them out of the frames. Right. And that unless they're being stored, like, in very particular conditions, they're probably all ruined. Destroyed, yeah. Yeah. And that one of the other theories that I remember hearing about on that podcast was that they were... They were stolen, and when the the thieves couldn't figure out how to get rid of them, they just destroyed them because they didn't know what to do with them.
0: Oh my God. Oh, which is, I hope that one's not real. It
1: hurts my heart. Like, oh, that makes me like ill because it's so sad. God. Yeah.
0: That's crazy.
1: So, again, nobody died, but yeah, 500. Million dollars worth of art stolen. Never found. They've never found any of them. Nothing.
0: So you may not know this, but does this does that mean that the um the art museum doesn't acquire any new pieces or like have a changing exhibit or anything?
1: They do not. That's crazy. Mm yeah, it's, it's like, it's her private collection. It, um, the museum is solely to exhibit her private collection, and that's it.
0: How rich do you have to be for that to be your private collection? Golly. For
1: real. Um, and so, also, I remember, I think when the letters came in 1994, the person they were corresponding with had sent, like, what they claimed to be, like, chips of paint from the paintings, like, to prove that they had them or had <laughs> access to them but you can like date those things and they, right. well they dated back really far they could not date them all the way back to when these were painted to like they were dated back to like this the 1700s but not like these were painted like the 14 1500s
0: well um let's see i know that the that vermeer was late 1600s early 1700s
1: mm-hmm. but they like they were able to date them back pretty far but not as far as these paintings when they were painted
0: <coughs> wow holy yeah. cow
1: it's crazy and you think the science that goes into like dating a paint chip
0: oh yeah no that stuff is so cool
1: it's nuts
0: I watched a video the other day of uh, of an art restorer working on an art yes. piece oh, those, those videos, videos are
1: fascinating. they're
0: so they're mesmerizing
1: yes they totally are I've watched those before yeah this case is completely baffling and I wish that they would just get the paintings back but like at this point they can't I mean the the statute of limitations has expired. They can't like prosecute anybody, but I'm sure they would like to have those back.
0: I don't know, man. The way they say if you come forward we won't prosecute, it's kind of like when your parents say if you just tell the truth I won't spank you and then they do anyway.
1: I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's been so long. It's like, well, if you don't if you come forward, not only will we not prosecute you, we'll give you 10 million dollars just to give them back. Right. I don't think it's like the BTK that was sending letters to the cops like, oh, if I send you this disc, you can't trace me, right? And they were like, no, totally not <laughs> ever. No. No, definitely not. God, that's we crazy. totally can't find you based on this disc. <laughs> Please send it to us.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. But yeah, that is, I feel like I went really short.
0: No, i 20 minutes. We are t- um, We tend to be between 20 and 30. Okay. Um, but I just feel like now I have to outdo you. Like, I feel like every week is just you doing better than me and me having to figure out how to do it better. Especially because last week mine was just it. <laughs> I found it fascinating, but I did not deliver it well.
1: I know I liked your last case.
0: The mobster's.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like I said, I That's it, why I
1: wanted to do like this was a little bit mobby. I was like, ooh, I
0: gotta do some mobby stuff. I wondered if I inspired you. See? I also I also love any time you can use the word heist. Like I do that too. just sounds so um You can't use it all the time. Nefarious. Right. hmm So all totally. right. Well, this has been awesome. Definitely. Um I'm gonna go to bed now.
1: You do that. Do you have to work tomorrow? Yes. Or are you
0: off? Oh. Um, our wonderful chief of America is going to be in my town <laughs> this week, which by the time this episode goes live, it will have already happened. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm hoping that because it's going to be so close to where I work, that school will be shut down that day or at least a half day. That would be really nice.
1: That would be nice. It'd be like the only good thing he's done in his presidency. Right. <laughs> I
0: said it. Did you see my text about me dreaming he was yelling at me? Yes. That's terrifying. So, for our lovely patrons, the other night, Sarah was out of town this weekend and I was home alone. I did a lot of painting and decompressing, which was nice. Um mm-hmm. Not that I wanted her gone, but she went to see her family, and I know I would not have decompressed around her family. Totally. Yeah. Um. Anyway, but I woke up in the middle of the night because I was having this awful dream that President Trump was yelling at me. And then when I opened my eyes, his campaign ad was on the TV because I'd left it on. And I was like, this is why my mother told me not to sleep with the TV on. This is totally. the reason.
1: I had a dream the other night that I got eaten by a whale.
0: Okay, Jonah. Kind of, yeah. I mean, what were you, what did God tell you it to do like that you decided not whale, to? It was like a moby whale,
1: like a sperm whale.
0: Of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> what was the resolution? Or did you wake up I just once I got eaten you? by the whale, and then I, like, woke up, and I was like, "Oh, <gasps> Ah, that's the worst. <laughs> it was one, yeah. I always want to know what would have come next.
1: I don't. I'm good. <laughs> I, like, you know, like, I, I'm have really bad dreams sometimes but i will take like an, a dream about me getting eaten by a whale over like a flashback dream from
0: uh-huh stuff
1: that i've actually experienced any day of the week so right. it wasn't that bad
0: yeah all right well have a good evening Fun time you too and have a good sleep th- thanks you all for um listening to us have a great week bye yeah. bye so what's up
1: I'm going to answer you like I answered all my friends and when we were writing notes in the 10th grade. The sky. Not much, you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then you have to fold your note in the way that you pull the tab. Yeah, totally. Um. Well. Not much here, you. <laughs> do you want to hear the good news or the bad news first?
1: The bad news.
0: There's a tornado coming, apparently, and I might die.
1: You're not going to die. What's the good news?
0: Um. This week, I'm covering... Amelia Earhart. Woo! And that's why right. the other morning when I texted y'all about, um, aviatrix being a word. Oh, yes. That's because I was that doing is my, my research. favorite word, though. I know, I love it. So, that's for the whole world to know, aviatrix is the word that means female aviator. The lady, it's a lady pilot. It's a lady pilot. Um... So, because it's long, I'm just going to jump into this.
1: Mm. It's long, you say? Let me grab another drink. Hold
0: on. Okay. <laughs> okay. Aaron's back. I'm back. All right. So, Amelia Mary Earhart Aww. was born on July 24th, 1897.
1: In Atchis- July 24th was my son's official due date. Oh.
0: 1897?
1: No, 2004.
0: Because y'all look really good. Right? Um,
1: That Botox baby.
0: She was born in Atchison, Kansas. Okay. Amelia had a sister two years younger than her whose name was Grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was devoted to her. Okay. And their childhood nicknames were Mealy and Pidge. And I think that's precious.
1: is precious and i also just realized
0: something what
1: we got off our regular episode without telling anybody where to follow us or where to find
0: us oh man okay we can stick that in in just a second (laughs) editing magic no one will know except for our patrons all right um their mother Insisted that they have a convention, uh, do not have a conventional upbringing. She did not believe in forcing her daughters to be quote, nice little girls. And so they wore pants. They were wild. Um, they also ran around and got dirty and, um, they were always like outside seeking adventures. They climbed trees and they slid down hills on their stomachs. They hunted rats with a rifle and they collected worms and moths and katydids and a toad. So they were like rad little girls. Aww. Um, in 1904, with her uncle's help, Amelia fashioned a homemade roller coaster ramp. Aww. And then attached it to the roof of their tool shed, which is how all good ideas end. So she um climbed up on top of this tool shed, and then she took a wooden box because everyone should go down a roller coaster ramp attached to a tool shed in a wooden box. I agree so far. And launched herself into the air. Good girl. Um. Needless to say, gravity is a force that's always at work. So allegedly. <laughs> she came crashing down. She fell to the ground, bruised her lip and tore her dress and when she came out of the wreckage, a little battered and worse for the wear, she started screaming to her sister, oh Pidge, it's just like flying. Aww. So, um, three years after that, her father's job relocated them to Des Moines, Iowa. Ooh, and thanks. the next year, Amelia saw her first aircraft at the Iowa State Fair. and Oh, that's so cute. Well, she described it as a thing of rusty wire and wood, and not at all interesting. I and mean, then she walked away and asked to go on the merry-go-round.
1: She's like, well, I hate that. Thanks for bringing us here, Dad. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> so, for seven years, they lived a pretty comfortable life. Um, at at one point, they even had two hired servants. Um but in 1914, her father's alcoholism had gotten out of control and mm-hmm. it had become so bad that he was forced by his company to retire. Ooh. Yeah. And then shortly after that, Amelia's grandmother died and, um, her grandmother had a, was not like super wealthy, but she was like upper middle class. Sure. And so she left what was left of her estate actually in a trust for Amelia's mother For fear that her dad, Edwin, would spend all their money when he was drunk. So, um, Amelia described this as the end of her childhood. And things were really rocky for the Earhart's for a while after this. Um, Around 1917, um, Amelia Earhart's mom and dad split. Um, So they were not divorced, but they were separated. Um, And so Amelia actually went up to visit Toronto with uh, her sister. Um, Her sister wound up living in Maine, but Amelia Mm -hmm. actually kind of enjoyed Toronto. So she worked there for a while. She took classes from the Red Cross to become a nurse's aide. And Mm -hmm. so she worked for the voluntary aid detachment um, as part of the war effort. Okay. In 1918 though, she fell victim to the Spanish flu and she developed pneumonia and maxillary sinusitis, which Ooh. actually became a problem for her for years to come after that. Like while she mm-hmm. was flying, sometimes she would have to wear a tube and tape oh, it to goodness. her face because of the way that sinuses drained weird. Oh my um, gosh. She, okay. she eventually did have surgery to fix it. Um, but it took several surgeries to actually fix it. Mm hmm. Um, after, she recovered she or like while she was recovering from all that she lived with her sister and then she um during this time she went to an airfield uh, or to an airfare held in toronto so she went back up to toronto with this friend to watch all the exhibitions put on by the um Mm -hmm. flying aces okay and so a pilot who was flying spotted the two women from the air and dove his plane at them um and (laughs) amelia though stared him in the eye and refused to move she like stood her ground well um and she said i did not understand it at the time but i believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by oh and she became obsessed with planes after that so she started so wiry now are they right (laughs) So she started working all these like kind of odd jobs. She was a stenographer and a photographer and a truck driver, just to name a few. And mm-hmm. she worked to save up a thousand dollars for flying lessons. Wow. Um, her mom, in fact, donated some money from her trust to Amelia, mm-hmm. even though uh, against her better judgment, she said, but um, so on January 3rd, 1921, Amelia Earhart took her first flying lesson with Anita Snook, um, a pioneer aviatrix. She was one of the very first women to ever fly. Cool. Um so six months later, Amelia saved up and bought her first plane, which was bright yellow, so she nicknamed it the Canary. Mm-hmm. Nearly a year and a half later, on May fifteenth, nineteen twenty three, Amelia Earhart became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license by the FAI, which is French. And I'm not going to try to pronounce the French words, but it's the international (laughs) aeronautical Federation. Okay. Um, throughout the following years, she rose to celebrity status and eventually met a publisher named George Putnam. Um, she and George Putnam got very close um he was known as g p by his friends and he was divorced in nineteen twenty nine um and sought out Earhart. He proposed to her six times before she finally agreed to marry him.
1: Wow um
0: he was a very like famous and well known book publisher. He in fact published her autobiography after her disappearance mm-hmm. um but he was very progressive and um completely supported that she wanted to be a pilot and supported that she wanted to make money and was like, he thought it was kind of backwards that men expected women to stay at home. So hey. they were a good couple. Um, I like them. So um, she was, she was very liberal for the time and believed that there were equal responsibilities for both breadwinners as she put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she very pointedly kept her own name rather than being Mrs. Putnam. Ooh. Um the New York times one time wrote a piece on her and she insisted that she be called, uh, Amelia Earhart. And instead they referred to her as Mrs. Putnam, the entire articles, but she just laughed it off. She kind of had a good sense of humor about it, but Putnam also learned and he didn't care either. He thought it was funny that publications would refer to him as Mr. Earhart <laughs> because she was the more famous one at the time anyway. Mm-hmm. So, um, She, sorry, (coughs) um, let's see. So she became the first woman to fly nonstop solo across the Atlantic. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: as such, she receives the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress, the Cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government, and the Gold Medal of the National Geographic Society from President Herbert Hoover.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Um, and as her fame grew, she developed friendships with many people in like high offices. Um, she became good friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, mm-hmm. and um, Roosevelt shared many of Earhart's interests and passions, especially like women's causes. Earhart was was a a big feminist, um, obviously. Like she was one of the few female pilots in the world. Like right. Um, after flying with Earhart. Roosevelt obtained a student permit. She was so inspired. She didn't eventually learn how to fly completely, but she did take some flying lessons because Amelia was so inspiring. Cool. Um, so in 1935, Amelia Earhart joined Purdue University as a visiting faculty member. And her job solely was to counsel women on careers and as a technical advisor to Department of Aeronautics. So she was hired to help promote women's rights in the school and to teach aviation. Okay. Um, at a time when it was rare for women to be college professors. I mean, she mm-hmm. was just an incredible badass. Yeah. In 1936, she started planning a round-the-world flight. Cool. Cool. Others had flown around the world at this point, but hers would be the longest at 29,000 miles because <laughs> it followed the uh, equator. So she was going to fly the fullest circumference of the globe. Okay. Um, Purdue financed the flight, and in 1936, um, a Lockheed Electra 10E was built for her to her custom specifications. Mm -hmm. Um, And it included extensive modifications to the fuselage to incorporate additional fuel tanks so that she wouldn't Mm -hmm. have to stop all the time. And she dubbed her twin engine plane her flying laboratory. Okay. The plane was built um, and delivered to her at the... um, manse's united air services which was just across the airfield from the plant where it was built and so um she got to have lots of hands-on um say and she had to watch the whole thing being built and i think that is so cool that she went and customized an airplane like would be really cool (laughs) like i can't even imagine going and customizing a car and i drive one of those every day
1: right Mm
0: -hmm. um it was a lot of responsibility to customize my iMac so um (laughs) Although the Electra was published or publicized as the flying laboratory, there wasn't a whole lot of actual useful science planned. And the flight mm-hmm. was arranged around Earhart's intention to circumnavigate the globe along with gathering raw material and public attention for her next mm-hmm. book. So they didn't add a whole bunch of like newfangled dangled bells and whistles because she knew what she was doing and she knew how to fly. Right. Um, so she chose captain Harry Manning as her navigator Um, Mm -hmm. he had been the captain of the President Roosevelt, which was the ship that brought Earhart back from Europe, um, like whenever she did a European tour. So he'd been a (laughs) ship captain, but he was good at navigating. So he was actually not only a navigator, but he was a very skilled pilot and a skilled radio operator who knew Morse code. So he was going to be very beneficial on this trip. Right. The plan originally was for it to be a two-person crew, just Earhart and Manning. Um, She would fly and he would navigate. And during, um, during a flight across the country that included Earhart, Manning, and her husband Putnam, um, Earhart flew using landmarks, you know, the way I drive, like turn right at the McDonald's, not, don't Mm -hmm. you dare give me a direction like west, you and I will not be friends anymore.
1: Oh, yeah. I will, not only will we not be friends, I will not get where I'm going. Right.
0: Um, so, (laughs) she and Putnam knew where they were, um. But Manning, um, Manning did a navigation fix, which I don't actually know what that means, but it alarmed Putnam because his, oh, because his position put them in the wrong state. So he was charting somehow and was like a whole state off. Um, so they were flying close to the state line. So the navigation error was minor, but Putnam was still very concerned about this. So, sometime later, Putnam and Mance, who was the um, owner of the airfield where Earhart was taking off, um, Mm -hmm. arranged a night flight to test Manning's navigational skill. And um, under poor navigational conditions, his position was off by 20 miles. Okay. So, um, some experts consider his performance reasonable because it was within the acceptable error of 30 miles. Mm-hmm. but Mance and Putnam wanted a better navigator, which I feel like 30 miles is a long way off, but I guess flying from the air, you have to account for like wind resistance and right. things that yeah. I don't understand.
1: Also it's the 1930s,
0: right? They don't have Siri telling them where to turn. It's
1: <laughs> is like always super weird to me when I listen to these stories and I'm like, people were doing that in the thirties. Like that's
0: odd. Right. So, um, through some mutual friends, they found out about Fred Noonan who was chosen as a second navigator because there were other factors that had to be dealt with while using celestial navigation. And he was prepared for those. Okay. He was a Marine. Um, and he was a captain for the Marines and a flight navigator. Oh no, he was, Mm -hmm. he was experienced in Marine because he was a ship captain and flight navigation. Sorry, I misread my notes. Um, so, um, whereas, um, Manning was only good at marine navigation. Um, Fred Noonan had both marine and air experience. Okay. So Noonan had recently left Pan Am, where he was, um, where he established most of the company's seaplane routes. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd also been responsible for training Pan Am's navigators for the route between San Francisco and Manila. hmm and then the original plans were for him to navigate from Hawaii to Howland Island, which was a difficult portion of the flight. And then Manning would continue with Earhart to Australia, and she would proceed on her own for the remainder of the project. Okay. Um, however, their first attempt proved unsuccessful, and they had mm-hmm. only made it to Hawaii whenever their plane, um, her plane had some issues. and It had to be repaired. Okay. So, while it was being repaired, they had to accumulate new funds to take a second attempt. And this time, they decided that because of the weather conditions at this time, because time had passed, it would be more suitable for them to fly from west to east instead of east mm-hmm. to west, how they'd started out. Okay. Um, so, I think Hawaii was wrong, and I mistyped it. But anyway, part of their trip, they had a big issue. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so... Um, This time, she had an unpublicized flight from Oakland to Miami, um, where she uh, publicly announced her plans to circumnavigate the globe. Okay. Um, Her opposite direction, like I said, was because of global wind and weather patterns. Um, And on this flight, Fred Noonan was her only crew member.
1: Okay.
0: So, the pair departed Miami on June 1st. Mm-hmm. and then made numerous stops in South America, Africa, and the Indian subcontinent and Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. they arrived at Ley New Guinea on June 29th, 1937. So at okay. this point um about 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed, but the next 7,000 miles would be over the Pacific Ocean. Um while they were approaching, um, or rather during that last leg of the flight before they were making this trip over the Pacific, um, they found out that their radio communication had failed. They had it Mm -hmm. repaired. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it seemed like the signals were fine and everything was fine. But, Mm -hmm. um, while they were approaching Howland Island, which was a stop in the middle of the Pacific ocean, um, there be there were some misunderstandings on the radio, which some of them are still controversial about what's actually going on here. Okay. Um, they tried to approach Howland Island using radio navigation, and it was not successful. Fred Noonan had earlier written about problems affecting the radio detection or direction finding and navigation. Um, and then there was some possible confusion, um, that. Um they had planned the communications to be set a half hour apart, but mm-hmm. that she was using Greenwich Civil Time and he was using Naval Time. And so they weren't on the same time frame. Okay. Um, so during their approach to Howland Island, um the Itosca, which is a the it was a ship sent out by the Navy to mm-hmm. aid this Um, the Atoska received strong and clear voice transmissions from Earhart identifying her. Um, but when they responded, she could not hear them. It was clear by her responses. Okay. And so signals from the ship would also be sent to use like for directions, but the, uh, plane's inability to find or to land would prove or would imply that they were not receiving these signals that the ship was sending out. Okay. Um, so the first calls were routine. They were received at 2.45 and then just before 5 a.m. on July 2nd. The calls were broken up by static, but at this point the aircraft would still be a long distance from Howland. At 6.14, another place, another call was placed stating the aircraft was in 200 miles and requested that the ship use its direction finder to provide a bearing for the aircraft. Mm-hmm. she went on whistling into the microphone to provide a continuous sing- signal for them to hone in on. So, mm-hmm. um, so that the, their, her radio would just keep making noise for their signal to catch on to. She just whistled a song. Oh, okay. It was at this point that the radio operators on the Itosca realized that their RDF system could not find her frequency. Um, okay. So the radio man for the ship later commented that he was sitting there sweating blood because I couldn't do a damn thing about it. A similar call was asking for a bearing, a similar call asking for a bearing was received at 6.45 a.m. when Earhart estimated they were about a hundred miles out. Okay. And then the radio log position um, at 7.30 a.m. states, Earhart on Northwest... SEZ. I don't actually know what that abbreviation means. Running out of gas. Only a la- half hour left. Can't hear us at all. We hear her. We are sending out on 3105 and 500 at the same time constantly. Mm-hmm. Another radio log at 742 says KHAQQ, which was Earhart's airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, calling atosca, We must be on you, but cannot see you. Gas is running low, been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at a thousand feet. So that's her transmission. We're trying to find you. We can't see you. Gas is running low. We're flying at a thousand feet. Yeah, we're, we're like super fucking low to the ground. Yeah. So her 758 transmission said she couldn't hear the Itasca and asked them to send voice signals so she could try to take a radio bearing. The transmission was reported by Atasca as the loudest possible signal indicating that Earhart and Noonan were in the immediate area. They couldn't send voice at the frequency she asked for, so Morse code signals were sent instead. Earhart acknowledged receiving these, but said she was unable to determine their direction. Mm -hmm. Um, During her approach to the island, the Itasca received a strong and clear voice transmission, but she was unable to hear their transmissions back to her. Signals from the ship would also be used for direction finding, implying that the aircraft direction finder was also not functional. Okay. Um, so, um, that was the last they heard from Amelia Earhart was asking mm-hmm. for them to please send a signal. Um, after some time passed, the Itasca sent out to, um, to locate Amelia Earhart um, to at least locate her ship. I mean, her plane, if nothing else, Mm -hmm. Um, there was a life raft attached to her plane. And Mm -hmm. um, so they looked for any sign of the lifeboat of the plane of a crash, but they could find nothing. Um, They spent, I think it was three weeks looking for her. Um, I forgot to write this down. And came up with nothing. So the official report is that her plane hit the water and mm-hmm. sunk all the way to the ocean floor. Which seems a little um, unlikely. Yeah. But, um, you know, like no one's ever been able to find her. Yeah. Except DNA testing may soon determine... Whether newly discovered bones from an island in the Pacific are those of Amelia Earhart. And if so, they will shed light on what happened to her. So these bones were found on Nico Mororo. I'm Mm -hmm. sure I nailed that on the first try.
1: I'm sure you did too. Um, Which
0: is a remote island in the Western Pacific Ocean. And they were actually found in 1940. But it wasn't until a 2018 study that people began to suspect they could belong, belong to Earhart. Okay. Because their original measurements could not have matched Amelia Earhart. But then, with new technology, Richard Jantz, who is a researcher, remeasured them and says that they actually very closely match the dimensions of Amelia Earhart. Hmm. Um A forensic psych, a forensic anthropologist out of the University of South Florida plans to use DNA testing to confirm the theory that this is Amelia Earhart. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, uh, Erin Kimmel is her name. Kimmerle. And she was invited by National Geographic um, to take part in this and appears in an upcoming documentary about the pilot. Cool. Um, So. The thing about these bones is they were, first of all, originally dismissed as a male because they were too tall to be a woman. Mm -hmm. But then they were- Women aren't tall, Paul, don't you know? Right. Then they were missing for decades. Okay. Um, So they were lost in 1940. And then last year they were found in a museum on the island of Tarawa, Uh, which let them lose bones. (laughs) I wonder that too. Um, but hey, uh, Sam
1: did did you see the bones that I left on this table? Oh no, man! I I don't know what happened to them. (laughs) Yeah, these are like important bones, man. Like I need the bones.
0: You don't have the dude's bones. I don't
1: know where they went.
0: So, if they the...
1: probably went to that, that museum, that other museum, they probably <laughs> picked them up for that other museum, like transport.
0: What? <laughs> <laughs> so, if these bones are tested and confirmed to be Earhart's, um, then what they will actually prove is that she survived for some time as a castaway out in the Pacific. Um, Which is even more disappointing. Oh, absolutely. But it would be nice to have some closure on this. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, she so her last two phone calls to her husband. One was that Fred is drinking again. That was her. Well, what she said was, "We're having some personnel issues," and everyone involved who could hear that end of the phone call said it was very pointedly directed at Fred's drinking. Okay. Um, her next phone call to. Her husband, um, which was like the day before she died uh, or disappeared rather, was that she was having a blast and that she thought everything was going to be okay with Fred and that next time she did this trip, it was going to be with her husband.
1: Spring break 2020. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and um, yeah, that's the <sighs> sad. That's the sad, and I mean her. Her story is so incredible. I feel even bad condensing it down to thirty minutes, but yeah. Um,
1: that's really just, sad. But like, I would, I would really. That's something I would really like to know what happened.
0: Me too. And so I'm kind of hoping that these bones, that the lost and found bones, are um, proof to be Amelia Earhart's. It can give some closure and reveal some interesting things. Like she's kind of badass for surviving as a castaway.
1: Yeah, for real,
0: though. I mean, also very sad. I, I saw that to. movie. And all she had was a was Fred. She didn't even have a, ba- a volleyball.
1: Yeah, no Wilson.
0: All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. You've survived the tornado so far. So far. It did thunder really loudly. I don't know if you heard it while I was talking. I did not. Mm-mm. Okay, great. Um, until sure. next week, guys, have a beautiful day. All right. See
1: you
0: later. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Patreon exclusive episode. The song She Dreams in Blue was written and recorded by Josh Woodward and is available at joshwoodward.com.